When I become a Bitcoin millionaire, I am not going to share it with you. <laughs> Likewise. <laughs> yeah. Hey, uh, you I know will, what? I'm starting a new business, Jim. I'm a Bitcoin custodian now, so you should let me hold on to that Bitcoin yeah. for you. Yeah, we'll, we'll custody it for you, Jim. Yeah, don't worry about it's it. It's complicated. We'll just yeah, well, pet your hair and, uh, and custody your Bitcoin. Yeah, so the Bitcoin will be in the mail, gentlemen. All right. The check will yeah. be in the other direction. Yeah, exactly. This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast. This is the second half of our talk with Jim. Jim was a corporate lawyer, a business executive, and now in retirement, he is an EMT. We dive into politics, economics, altcoins, the Lightning Network, and Bitcoin as an asset as well as a network. We enjoyed this discussion with Jim, and we hope you do too. All views and language expressed by the hosts and guests in this podcast are solely their personal opinions and do not reflect their employers or organizations they are associated with. Do not treat any of the content in this podcast as investment advice or as an inducement to follow a particular strategy. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Jim, you, you said something earlier. I took a note here and I kind of wanted to uh, jive with you a little bit and sort of fill you in on some of where I'm at. We're not, we're gonna, we're not gonna get super deep into politics, but I don't want to come across like every single government intervention and money interjection is a bad idea. Like, dirt, we just went through a global pandemic, and obviously there's massive differing opinion on its severity and how the government should have responded, but. Your head's in the sand if you don't think real suffering and issues just transpired over the last year. And a lot of people were hurting and a lot of people couldn't work. And the United States and other nations around the world, they, they didn't just inject money to be assholes. Like they did it to, I believe, primarily help people. And on a short term basis, like they did, a lot of people needed that stimulus money. So, A, in that, I just actually tweeted this yesterday. We're at blue underscore collar BTC. Um, I said, excessive fiscal and monetary policy is complicated and insidious. It's much like drug addiction. It does momentarily and tangibly relieve short-term pain, but ongoing abuse will invariably contribute to escalating consequence. So the way I view it right now is like, I, I, I want people to be helped. I'm not against any and all social program. And, and actually, ironically, stimulus checks in, in a way are necessary and fair because they've inserted so much money from the top through quantitative easing that it's kind of about time that they insert some of this money from below, if that makes sense. So in the sticks and bubblegum system that we're in right now, I can understand why their hands are tied and why they're taking these actions. But my concern is that the sticks and bubblegum have extended so far over the ledge that we're, it's, it's mathematically guaranteed to collapse or deleverage at some point, and that's going to create tremendous pain and, and discomfort. So in that sense, this whole subject for me in my head, and feel free to react, it's just very nuanced. 
Like, I'm not saying it's all bad, but I'm saying if we continue to take this drug of, and just keep printing money out of thin air, which is essentially what's happening through quantitative easing and stimulus checks, it's ending up on the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. Like, we hit $8 trillion last week. We were less than a trillion in 2008. We're creating money. out. If we keep doing this, if we keep thinking we can get a free lunch, eventually the whole thing's going to fall down. And so in that regard, I'm like, we've got to tighten up in some way, shape, or form. Any, any sort of thoughts on that train of thought? I, I am largely in agreement with you. I mean, <clears throat> I, uh, you know, I took a lot of economics in um, college, and I worked in a major corporation where I got to see you know, sort of the micro aspect of that. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think, look, look what Europe went through a number of years ago with, <clears throat> they, you know, they had to tighten their belts and Greece and all of the pain that was incurred in Greece because of the addiction to spending and just the more, more, more kind of mentality. And I think there are both um, financial and political reasons why all of that happens. And you can debate endlessly um the the policy issues behind all of that but i think in general yes i think we have shown over time that you cannot just continue to spend yourself into happiness either as an individual or as a country Mm, yeah and so yes i am i am deeply concerned with that but that also leads me into um a really good question and i'm just going to kind of skip ahead a little bit why bitcoin why does Bitcoin solve that problem as opposed to Ethereum or any of the other hundreds, you know, Dogecoin, which I'm told started out as a joke and yes, now it it's did. worth, you know, a, a couple billion dollars or many billion dollars. <laughs> Why Bitcoin as opposed to any of those other tools, crypto tools to solve this problem that, we're, that we largely agree on? Oh boy, Jim, you just... You just unlocked us here. We got <laughs> we're a couple uh, hyenas on a carcass with that question. And mind you, my wife just brought down three fresh beers, so things could get weird here from this point forward. <laughs> I've already slid two of them to my side. Uh, All you I, have to do is add chocolate chip cookies or jelly beans, and she, I'm on a plane we, flying. She there. brought cookies. I, I shit you not. We've got uh, M M&M and M cookies right here, Jim. Oh, oh. she knows. You're killing me. Yeah, you're killing me. So why Bitcoin? I'm I'm happy to be the uh, carcass. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna feed on you. This what's really interesting about what Bitcoin is and versus all of the rest of these thousands of coins that exist now is the path dependent nature of this kind of an invention. This mm. this this in, this is something that it can only be invented one time. Digital scarcity uh, being that invention and Bitcoin is the first one. And so being the first one out of the gates with years uh, you know, in between a competitor, it has garnered network effects. Um, and the path dependency is the thing I really want to drive home. All of the, everything that's been built in Bitcoin, there's so much uniqueness about how this all happened. The, this mysterious person named Satoshi Nakamoto not only solved some of the hardest problems in computer science by building Bitcoin itself, but he he did it in a selfless um, a selfless manner in, in which he he mined a bunch of these coins initially 
and there was a large uh, mining reward back then. So he has about a million coins that are sitting in a wallet that have never moved since 2009 when he started mining. Those coins have never moved. People suspect that either he's passed away or you know, there could be a myriad of other reasons, but it's very strange that somebody who has aggregated themselves billions of dollars in value hasn't sold, hasn't moved them, has built this entire project from... And in the first Genesis block, he wrote about a bank bailout in Britain. And so this entire thing, he was very, I hate to say politically motivated, but he obviously was irked by the, the financial system being what it was. And he wanted to improve the world with this protocol. And he did it without any benefit to himself. Like nobody knows who this guy is besides his pseudonym. Um, he didn't get any attention. He didn't get any fanfare. He didn't get any money. He worked on this uh, with a couple of individuals close, close to him initially, but has just never benefited from it, which is an extremely unique individual, I think. I, I don't think I'd be able to do that. I don't know anybody I, that I think could do something that, that amazing, really. But I think what that did is it set this on a path to be such a unique vision. So a lot of these other coins that you see, like Ethereum is a good example. Ethereum, in order, to, um, in order to fund itself, it was pre-mined, which meant that Vitalik, who is the uh, co-founder and his partner and a bunch of developers, they, they got a, a ton of these coins initially in order to fund their, their, uh, in, their development of Ethereum. Bitcoin was never pre-mined. There was never any incentive system or structure in line for anybody to benefit over somebody else in this. So... I would say it's the most altruistic project out there because there's nobody, it's not set up like a Ponzi scheme like some of these things are where uh, one group of people is going to pump this up and then sell it into a bunch of people who don't know what's going on, uh, economically benefit from it, and then move on and to the next project where they can scam people again. Um, the other thing that was really... Wait, wait, before you move on, tell them, what a theor- tell them about Vitalik on the Lex podcast, what you were saying before. Oh, specifically his comment about Bitcoin as money. I found that really interesting. Oh, yes. Even Vitalik, who is, uh, who is the guy who is the founder of Ethereum, recognizes that Bitcoin is money. Like there's, in his mind, he's not competing with Bitcoin on a monetary level. He's, he's competing with an entirely different use case, which is a, a general, um, like a general purpose computer blockchain, which allows people to have the ability to do whatever it is they want with it which they've been very successful at. And Bitcoin has always been very focused on one thing, which is being money. And like Dan so well, so eloquently put it, it's mastered all of the characteristics of money to a degree that nothing else has. And Ethereum, again, it's got an inflation um, supply. It's got an inflationary supply that goes up some percentage every single year. So it does not have a limited amount. There's never going to be a hard capped supply of Ethereum. ETH 2.0 has a 7% annualized inflation rate. Okay. So 7% every year uh, in perpetuity. Obviously, Bitcoin's being, you know, 21 million hard cap. It's, it's just a better way to store your wealth than any of these other coins because they're all either centralized in their node capability, or centralized in their um, development crew. Like everything about Bitcoin, from the developers to the nodes to the miners, is as decentralized as it can be, and much more decentralized than these other projects. 
Josh is doing me a favor because he's taking the first blow, Jim, and then I can jot some notes down. What, one more thing I want to add before Dan levels into this. There's one attribute that Bitcoin has, which is not even, there's not a competitor in sight, not even close. And what that, that is, is the hash power that Bitcoin garners, which is the amount of computers that are securing its network to protect it from attack. There's Bitcoin's hash rate is probably three or four orders of magnitude greater than the rest of these cryptocurrencies combined. So, I mean, we're talking about real economic actors putting computer power and electricity on the line in order to mine this thing and protect it because they're, um, because they're benefiting economically from getting paid by it. And so it's these incentive structures that are set up. It's the altruism which started it, and it's the decentralization that none of these other coins even come close to having, in my mind. Amen. No, I, uh, I agree that you have to go back to understanding that the the whole point of a cryptographic digital currency is decentralization. Without decentralization, it's pointless. The use case is better served on a centralized server because it can be faster and more energy efficient. Bitcoin is so far and away the King Kong of decentralization, it's not even close. Its network effect is proliferated to an extent that no other blockchain is 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 even sniffed okay so in that in that sense i'm resonating with josh here's my attempt jim at a here's my brief attempt at demolishing the vast majority of what we call shit coins um okay and and as a disclaimer i there is a lot there's this whole community called the bitcoin maximalist community uh, Josh and I would, by definition, be Bitcoin maximalists, where we think that logically Bitcoin's really the only wise investment at this point. In this, but, in this space. In this space, yeah. yeah. If you're going to yeah. invest in this space, you don't pay any attention to any other coin. They don't have the same fundamentals. But when I say that, I don't, I'm not harboring the same level of animosity towards other projects. Like, we're not going to talk a ton about Ether here on this episode, but what, what Ethereum is trying to do is really, really cool. And there's a lot of incredibly hyper-intelligent developers and working on the Ethereum project with good intention and, and very cool um, application. So I'm not undermining what they're doing. I'm just saying, for me, calling balls and strikes about what I want to put my hard-earned money into, the, the fundamentals aren't there for Ethereum or any of these other coins. So here's my best explanation of, of why that is. So... There's and I I'm gonna keep listing articles because obviously everything Josh and I are just regurgitating information we've we've gathered from other places. So a lot of I think I read this article this week and a lot of it's top of mind. It's an article called I actually reread it. It's called Bitcoin Not Blockchain. Um, it's by a guy named Parker Lewis from Unchained Capital, and so some of this is gonna be from there. But basically, I think he uses this analogy of saying. If you're interested in blockchain, but you're not interested in Bitcoin, which can be kind of a common phrase, like I'm interested in blockchain technology, but I'm not so sure about Bitcoin. The analogy he draws is that's the equivalent of saying like you're interested in airplanes, but you're not super keen on wings. Like that the two are so intertwined. And, and so here, here's, my, here's my attempt at enumerating that. So uh, blockchain technology, 
or a, or a, a, a hyper decentralized ledger like a blockchain is only valuable in a context where you need to remove a third party. And there really aren't that many situations where you desperately need to remove a third party. Um, money is one of the few spaces where there could be a benefit in getting rid of an intermediary because money is a technology or tool that's so prone to manipulation. And it's, it's an arena where everybody has an incentive or a desire to have a fair playing field. Okay. But there are, there are a lot of situations in the digital world where, that, where getting rid of a third party is completely unnecessary, if not inhibitive. So my, my thought here is if your application or your altcoin or your project is working within the sphere of money, eventually you're going to end up participating on top of the Bitcoin protocol because monetary assets and networks generally over time, history has shown us, they coalesce into the, the most trusted, the most secure, the most liquid, you could say the most predictable or scarce store of value. Like it, it would, in this sense, it would be counterproductive to store your wealth or build money in a less secure, right? A less liquid, a less scarce monetary good. There's another guy named Robert Breedlove that talks about the centripetal force of Bitcoin. So you can build, I mean, you can build the coolest money application with the best user experience in the world that moves Monopoly money or Chuck E. Cheese bucks, and no one's going to fucking use it because the, the technologies are going to end up being built on the most trustworthy base layer, which is Bitcoin. Um, in this sense, like look at look at money applications today, like Zelle, PayPal, Cash App, like they're they're working on US dollars, right? Because USD is the most saleable dominant form of money movement today. So if you enter now the crypto sphere and, and to kind of summarize this, there's not many applications for decentralization. Bitcoin is the most decentralized best functioning uh, application on top of money that's been well established now over a period of years. And so it's very likely everything's going to be subsumed onto it. And it's able to do that. It's able to scale because it's programmable and open source. Yeah. So I sent you guys an article um, by an author of Motley Fool that sort of, I, I did it tongue in cheek, um, but it was sort of, you know, the 10 reasons not to own Bitcoin or something like that. But that same author took wrote another article about if you're going to do if you're going to invest in crypto, it's not Bitcoin you should be investing in. It's these other two stocks, and he wrote about why. And one of them, I just want to raise this because it caught my attention, is um, a cryptocurrency called Stellar. I'd never heard of it before, but yeah, I'm familiar with that. Um, one. Yeah, bit. and and his point was that Stellar can. Um, can process transactions much more quickly and can process more transactions per second than Bitcoin can. So for use as currency, Stellar would be a better choice. They're also connected with IBM, um, which may or may not be a positive or negative. We'll have to find out. But does well, that does that concern you at all that, that there are technologies out there that have different attributes that might overcome Bitcoin? As in Stellar's case, and 
I think you could apply this uh, to most of the other altcoins. Stellar is very similar to XRP and a couple others that are in the same vein. What they're talking about there, the block. So what a lot of people in these altcoins have done is they took Bitcoin's code and then they just manipulate a few of the attributes that Bitcoin has and say, so Bitcoin has a 10 minute block time. What that means is uh, there's a 10 minute period of time when transactions happen. They're all aggregated by nodes. And then when a miner finds a block, there are, all the transactions are put on that block and then it starts mining the next one. So every 10 minutes is the soonest you will see a transaction final on Bitcoin. So it is fairly slow if you're thinking about this versus like Visa or Zelle because it happens instantaneously. But I think what people misunderstand there is that these are entirely different use cases. Like Bitcoin is a final settlement layer on the blockchain itself. And what that does every 10 minutes is it gives you absolute finality and absolute uh, censorship resistance, which we've banged on a couple of times now. With Stellar, what they have is a couple of corporate run nodes um, that can be manipulated by people who would like to change a transaction or manipulate things in however they would like. It's a less final settlement. It can be changed. So uh, okay. when we're talking about Bitcoin in the I almost want to compare it to what Swiss banks used to be when people that were wealthy would offshore bank to Switzerland because they knew that Switzerland was not changing. It was um, a country that wasn't taking anyone's side. They were completely neutral in the world, except that we're going to take your money, we're going to keep it safe, and you can trust that it's going to be here. Bitcoin is like the Swiss in the digital uh, realm. And Stellar would be more like uh, a smaller country that could do something maybe a little faster, but you can't necessarily trust it completely. The other thing that I think it needs to get said about this is that <laughs> Bitcoin on its base layer is certainly slower than Stellar. But what is, getting, what is getting built on top of that, which Dan mentioned earlier called the Lightning Network, it's already operable. You can use it right now. You can get payments in any quantity of less than a cent or $10,000 if you want. Those can move instantly, be settled instantly, and you still have all the assurances of the Bitcoin uh, base layer, which is all the security, all the Swiss uh, bank account that you want. But it can also operate in a much faster way and at a throughput that would put Visa or MasterCard to shame, which is an interesting... Um, I, I bet you the, he didn't compare how uh, Lightning Network was going to work versus Stellar, which would be a much more um, honest and fair comparison, to be or, honest. Or you. Lightning wasn't doing what it's doing today. Very um, possibly, the, too. There, there is, like, the answer to your question, the, the, and I'm sure the people that are working on Stellar and XRP are like, Lightning Network really has started to proliferate and, be, and have legs um, due to increased development and usage, like just over the last couple of years, it's a so it's called a second layer solution on Bitcoin. So we won't go into the details here, but the decision was made in 2017. The market decided there was what's called a hard fork in Bitcoin. There were a group of individuals. I don't know if you've ever heard of the having wars in Bitcoin, but it was a huge deal in 2017 where there was a large faction of incredibly high-profile developers and miners that wanted to fork Bitcoin and increased 
transaction throughput on a 10 minute block. So right now, every 10 minutes, each block, there's only about, there's less than 3000 transactions that can be housed in a 10 minute period on the base layer of Bitcoin. By comparison, Visa can do 1700 transactions per second. Okay. So we're not even in the same ballpark. Like there is you could say there's significant limitation and scarcity to transaction throughput on the base layer. And the decision was made, Jim, in, in 2017 that the mar- you know, the participants decided we are absolutely not going to increase that throughput because what that's going to do is increase the storage demand for people running their own node, right? Like Josh and I run our own node in our own house. It validates the Bitcoin transaction. I think it's what 320 gigs right now, something along those and lines. And so, if you yeah. increase transaction throughput, and it's 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 going to maintain doable like indefinitely into the future, the way it's designed. Right. If you start increasing transaction throughput on the base layer, you sacrifice decentralization because fewer people are going to be able to run right. nodes. So, the decision was made: we are not going to increase throughput on the base layer. We're going to do it in second layer solutions, things like Lightning. The simplest way to articulate what Lightning is, and Josh could probably do a better job than me, but it's essentially like a bar tab. People insert liquidity or provide liquidity, and then you open a tab and you can transfer unlimited amounts of Bitcoin between one another and then settle back on the main chain. So it's essentially like a a bar tab is the simplest way to explain it. It's, It's just like the way Visa and MasterCard work. When you use your credit card or your debit card, the money doesn't move right then. The money waits for the bank to aggregate a large sum, and then it's all moving in one big chunk from one institution to another at the end of the week. None of those transactions actually are final for sometimes weeks uh, on a debit or credit card. But I mean, as far as your bank account is concerned and what you see, that's settled immediately, but that's not the way it actually moves underlying uh, in the financial institutions around us. So Bitcoin acts a lot like the SWIFT network does, which is an interbank exchange where it'll move large sums back and forth uh, when needed. And Lightning Network would be just like using a Visa card where it's not necessarily a final. And I don't want to say this and confuse, and it may not even be technically correct, because it is final when it moves on Lightning. It is not final on Visa or MasterCard. So it's actually a more secure, more final way to move money around instantly than anything else that exists. At incredibly low cost. So yeah. the the summary here, if that, that was over any of the listeners' heads, is the Lightning Network allows unlimited throughput. So Visa can do 1,700 transactions a second. Lightning, as it scales, has the architecture to do unlimited throughput. And at this date and time, and whatever layer it's going to be, whether it's layer two, three, or four, or whatever, essentially zero cost. Like Josh and I have nerded out in the past with Lightning wallets sending each other three Satoshis, which is one one hundred millionth of a Bitcoin. We have streamed in real time instantaneously three one hundred millionths of a Bitcoin to each other back and forth and just giggled. Like because when you start to understand this thing and the fact that there's nobody, there's no central server that controls this, there's no intermediary and it's final immediately. Yeah. It is no wonder that the credit card companies are cozying up. Like some of these developers on the Lightning Network, like Strike, already have relationships with Visa. And I guarantee you there's been discussions in boardrooms at these these, uh, payment companies, like, 
holy shit. Because once you once you see how this thing works, you, you can't really unsee it. And it's important to note that this is what Salvadorans are using. Like they're not they're not transacting on the main chain, or if they are, they're seldom doing it. The way that they're going to make Bitcoin legal tender and buy tacos with Bitcoin is not on the main chain. They're going to be doing it on second layers. And so I, my, my strong opinion at this point, based on the facts, is that seriously, projects like XRP and XLM are absolutely toast. XLM is stellar, by the way. Um, there is a, that company Strike. Just real quick, I, I don't know if you listened to this other podcast where we talked about this, but they're actually Gavin app that's live right now where you can debit your account of, say, $20. It's turned into Bitcoin on the Lightning Network. It's routed to anywhere else in the world you want to send it, like your friend in Europe. Those stats are turned back into now euros, and they're going directly into the bank account immediately because there doesn't need to be a settlement time because the money, because Bitcoin is a bearer asset that's digital. It's the equivalent of sending gold across the con- across the continent to another one, cashing it out, assaying it, and turning it back into euros for them. So there doesn't need to be any time for settlement. You whatsoever. don't even know you're using Bitcoin. This is the this is yeah. back to what I was saying about Bitcoin working amongst fiat, Jim. Like there's going to be tons of people that are that are moving value between each other or transacting that have no idea it's ending up in Bitcoin. So in in that scenario where my mother lives in Guatemala and I want to pay for her special anniversary meal, I can just stream her money the way you and I could if we both had Cash App, right? But obviously she lives there. She doesn't have Cash App. She doesn't have a bank account. I can send my dollars into the Lightning Network and then it can instantaneously be converted into her currency of choice. And neither one of us may know that we're even using the Lightning Network. I think that that's really interesting that the the discussion around Lightning and to me that's um, that's a really interesting way to think about how Bitcoin becomes highly usable as a currency. Like Bitcoin itself mm-hmm. yeah. is kind of slow. It's as if I was going to send a check in the mail. Right. Um, but with Lightning or similar technology, it's much more akin to that credit card or, you know, however you want to refer to it, where I get, to, I get that, I, get, I can pay for my good right now and the transaction goes through instantly. But yeah. that leads me to another that leads me to another question around technology and that is how do we know that bitcoin isn't a really good idea that's just ahead of its time? And what I and what I'm sort of thinking of is the AOLs of the world or Netscape or you know in the original internet days a lot of those things those programs, those ideas that were really cool are no longer around. I mean, who has a Hotmail uh, email account? Very few people, right? So there were all these really cool ideas that were awesome, but somebody else came along with a slightly cooler idea or a slightly better way of doing something. When the Google search engine came out, all the other search engines like Bing and Yahoo and some of those things all just sort of faded away. How do we how do we feel confident that that's not going to happen with Bitcoin? I I resonate with this Jim a lot because this is something that gave me trepidation for a while, and it's still one of the reasons that I don't have like obviously I Bitcoin fits within a broader allocation for me, 
Like it's a, it's a hedge position within my investment portfolio. And this is one of the reasons why. Um, so I think it's a very fair question. I think if I was to criticize the Bitcoin community a little bit, you hear some of these people talk and, and there's an arrogance as though this thing's been around for 400 years. And it's like, this thing's been around for 12 years. Like, if I've known, I, I heard, who did I hear say this? I, I forget who it was. Someone said, like, if I've known you for 12 years, I don't even call you an old friend. You know, like, it, it is a new technology. And I think it is fair to say that technologies and networks with tremendous utility have been invented and never proliferated as some people expected. So uh, I, I do understand the question. I'll let Josh go first, take the first arrow, and then I'll, I'll jump in. Well, I think when we're talking about money specifically, um, what gives people confidence in money is seeing it stable, seeing it work, um, and trusting that the security and that everything is solid. And the technology piece of it, I think it's coming along, like we've talked about the Lightning Network. There's a couple of other technologies that are being built in and around Bitcoin that are going to reference back to its base blockchain in order to give them security. And that's the thing that gives me the, the impression that this is going to be something that'll be around for a long time. Because what it's doing, the, every, all Bitcoin has to do to be more and more relevant and useful in the future is continue to exist. Because every day it exists and isn't worth zero is more confidence that's built into people's understanding of it and why it is the most salient, most useful blockchain that there is um, because of its security primarily and its decentralization. So if those are the two things that people have f find valuable about money, security being a primary one and decentralization being a great uh, cohort to that because it doesn't allow anyone else to manipulate what you're holding, you're underlying. Then all the technologies that get built up and, and propped up around it are, are just going to increase that use case for it. So a lot of these altcoins, I think a lot of people view them as almost like test nets for great ideas mm -hmm. that are getting yeah. worked on in the space that could eventually work their way onto something that has the security that Bitcoin offers at the base layer. That's why it's I think it's so fundamentally important that the base layer be stays exactly what it is because it's intentionally slow. Like you used the word slow earlier, Jim. I think one thing that all Bitcoiners or, or those that are educated would say is, yeah, damn right. It's, it takes 10 minutes to verify a block and there's limited throughput on purpose. And its purpose is to allow it to be decentralized so that every person with $200 can buy all the equipment they need to run a node so that it can be as disseminated as possible. That is what is going to make this thing stick around. Because all these other technologies and, and cute ideas, they can simply get built on top of this, the security, the stronghold, the Swiss bank vault that is the underlying blockchain of Bitcoin. And like I was mentioning earlier, the hash rate behind it is, is a huge, huge reason to use it because it, it gives it all that security that you can't get in any other way than to have people pointing massive amounts of computer energy toward this thing. And that's what I think is really the fundamental underlying reason that this is going to be the one that's going to come out on top because you can build any technology you want on top of this. Yeah. And so anything useful that happens somewhere else is going to be better implemented on 
a higher security model. I think the the open source nature of this is so key to understand. Like in this regard, it's very similar to the Linux operating system that underpins almost everything we're using today and the internet itself. Like nobody imagined that in 1989 that we would be streaming HD video on YouTube TV. And the the internet was nowhere close to ready to to accomplish that. But People were able to develop on it because the, the internet protocol stack is open source and you can invent whatever the hell you want. You can create whatever application you want on top of it. The same is true for Bitcoin. So I, I totally agree with you there, Josh. I think there's two things for me that helped assuage some of my fears here, Jim, or at least give me enough conviction to to uh, take a, a bigger position. Um, the first one is... and. Josh, you essentially defined it earlier, but being careful of this idea called the Lindy effect. Um, VJ Boyaparty, he's a, he's somebody that kind of introduced me to this idea. It's it's basically the concept that the longer Bitcoin or a, ne- a network or a protocol remains in existence, the greater society's confidence is that it will continue to exist forever into the future. So, in the, like think about the internet in this in this sense. Like the internet really started to take foothold in the in the early 1980s. It's pretty young, but pretty much everybody today would agree. Like, we're not planning on the internet not existing. So every day that Bitcoin continues to persist and accomplish its goals, it becomes more and more likely that it'll persist forever. I think the second answer I have is. So you could say, you know, I think the, the, the crux of your question was like, is it before it's time? And I, I think the world is showing us that that's not the case. The data is showing, is painting a very different picture. This network has existed for 12 years. It has over 100 million users. It is the largest computing network in the world. Bitcoin is the largest computing network in the world. And it is encroached on every single layer of the financial system, retail, institutional, and now we're entering sovereign nation-state adoption. So, and then you add in just a crazy ripe macro backdrop, which we've already discussed. Just about to bring that in. Like you add these things together and I'm, I'm going to stay open-minded, like, is it before it's time? But all the indicators are saying, no, it's not. And what's really funny, Jim, is when you look at some of these guys that have been around for a while, like they're amazed at where Bitcoin is today. Like if you look at someone like Adam Back or one of these original cypherpunks working on this project, because this is a project that had been worked on. This whole thing of accomplishing digital scarcity didn't come out of thin air. Like guys were working on this for around 30 years, pretty uh, hard for about 20 years up until Satoshi made this discovery. So these original guys that have been working on this and watched Bitcoin originate and have seen it grown up, most of them are blown away that it has the level of adoption. Like they think that they're, you know, you hear them say things like, we're, we're a couple decades ahead of where I anticipated. So I, I think the, uh, the world is showing that it's hungry for a use case like this. And obviously if that, if the picture starts to get painted differently, I'll, I'll change my mind. But right now I think all the indicators are that it's not before it's time, that it's, it's right on time. What's interesting about all of these developments too is you have to come at it like we've said multiple times it's like a multidisciplinary disciplinary understanding um having read quite a bit of ray dalio and his debt cycle idea that we're in this uh towards the end of a debt cycle right now 
And I think looking around the world, you can kind of see where this is all going with the massive amount of debt being thrown on everyone's balance sheet. And that kind of stuff just can't perpetuate forever. Eventually, there's, there's going to be some, some reckoning for that. And then you have this dovetailing in of this new digital currency, which is um, aggregating more and more interest and is becoming more robust as we speak with so much development happening on it. The, watching those two forces kind of move together and coalesce, I, I'm gonna have a, I have a really hard time believing that this isn't going to be a much bigger deal in 10 years from now. Um, those two forces meeting each other is going to be a very interesting thing. And I think it's going to happen sooner than people think. The great collision. It should be, Josh so, should write an article. I think Josh should write a lot of articles. Agreed. I think Dan should write them. Um, a- <laughs> um, the, the concern, so what you tell me, I think makes a lot of sense. And the fact that, I mean, there is sort of a um, first-in advantage, and when you look at the technology, it's really, really amazing technology. But I think in order to be really 100% sold on Bitcoin as opposed to crypto in general, you have to believe that the best mousetrap has already been built. And yes, yes. In the age, in, and in the age of um, the internet and technology, it's hard for me to wrap my head around that. But, but I'm an old guy, right? So I have kind of a different perspective on this. I remember a time when somebody told me that eventually we weren't going to have to carry cash because we would have these plastic cards and would have all our information on it. We could just play, pay for things with <laughs> this plastic card. And I thought they were out of their mind. So, um, you know, that's my perspective. But there are a lot of other really, really smart people, way smarter than me, when it comes to investing, who think that crypto and in particular Bitcoin is uh, a pipe dream, that it is in fact the biggest scam in the history of the world. Warren Buffett and Janet Yellen, I mean, a lot of really, really um, talented investment people, Jamie Dimon, um, why, why, are, why are they wrong? And I know I've heard you say before, they're old and they just don't get it. No, I, I wasn't going to say that I whatsoever. I think it's all about okay. incentives, um, really. Like if you, so Janet Yellen, um, yeah. I think it's pretty clear that she's incentivized to not like Bitcoin. Yeah, as, those are low-hanging you know, fruit. <laughs> she's uh, running or she was running the central bank and is now the treasurer um, of yeah, the United States. That's, so that's and Buffett is invested in a lot yeah. of banks. Buffett owns <laughs> Bank of America and Wells Fargo. I mean, he Which you're does, about to get penetrated. Yeah. <laughs> I think that uh, I I like to think because I I love Buffett and I love Charlie Munger. Especially. I do too. We we both love Buffett and Munger, by the way. And but they, we we, we uh, both really sympathize with the whole value investment strategy. Absolutely, this is a little background. Yeah, and those guys are, in my view, and I don't know them, and I've read a lot of their books, and I think that they're missing through the forest for the trees here. I think especially in their cases. I mean, they're in their 90s, like trying to expect these guys to be on top of like technological developments um, is just kind of unrealistic. They stick to what they know, and I respect that. And I think everybody should do that. If, if you don't know, don't buy it. Um, who is the third person? Oh, Jamie Dimon. He's the CEO of uh, Chase Bank. So, I J- mean... J.P. Morgan, yeah. Oh, yeah. J.P. Morgan. Yeah. yeah. But, so, so you think it's just conflict of interest that... that- Personally, I mean, it seems like if Jamie, 
Jamie Dimon thought that um, Jamie Dimon they have crypto, a crypto trading desk now. Yeah, by y- the way. are you aware of J.P. Morgan's pivot? Yeah, so that yeah. that's sort of the point I was going to make. Jamie Dimon has said, "I don't think Bitcoin is real," but he understands that other people do. Yeah, so he's yeah. going to take advantage yep. of that and make money. Right, right, right. For so sure. if he no shame so in his if game. he thought Bitcoin was Yes. Well, and I mean, that's what it's all about. Yeah, I get it. If he thought that Bitcoin was legit, I don't think for one second that he wouldn't have JP Morgan jumping into that to make money. Um, so I, and, 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 um, and these other smart investors, Warren Buffett, yeah, he owns a lot of banks, he has insurance companies, all that, but he's a smart guy that goes after making money. And, um, yeah, he's more in a traditional hard assets kind of thing. I don't know. It just it's hard for me to get past how many people who I really think highly of in terms of their investment know-how and their financial know-how not only aren't buying Bitcoin and crypto but think that it's just uh vapor. That's very fair. And obviously there's a long list of names that are far smarter than Josh and I that don't like Bitcoin. But what I'm what I'm hesitant with here Jim is I sympathize with your question, but I also think there's it's a little bit of a spiral to go down the like this smart person doesn't agree with it because you can take any issue in the world and you're going to find hyper intelligent individuals on both sides of an argument. So like you've and and this is where, you know, you've listed some names. Well, I could come back and say Stan Drunkenmiller, Ray Dalio, Robert Kiyosaki, Mark Yusko, Paul Tudor Jones, Paul Tudor Jones, uh, Preston Pish, yeah. Lynn Alden. I mean, these are prolific names in institutional investing yeah. that are obsessed with Bitcoin, either interested in or obsessed with Bitcoin. So if we just not that you're doing this, but if you just play the like who's got the smartest guy in your corner, like both sides have a ton of interest. I think one thing that is interesting is that more and more individuals are coming over to this camp. So a lot of people that were ardently opposed to this, like Stan Drunkenmiller, what did he say the other year? Bitcoin is a... No, he just was on MSNBC last week and he said that he thinks within 10 to 15 years, the dollar won't be the reserve currency of the world. I mean, those words... He said Bitcoin is a is a problem that does or a solution looking for a problem, and then he said, "I take back those words. Bitcoin has found its problem." Basically, I didn't even, I didn't even hear that, but yeah, it's probably the same talk. I missed that part of it, but yeah, Stanley Drunkenmiller and George Soros were the guys who took down the Bank of England in the '90s and made billions. Um, if there's anybody that's in the FX market that is looking at the macro view, and um, that I'd want in my corner, I think it would be Drunkenmiller. Personally, I mean, like as an as a personal example, Josh has been interested in him longer. But like for me, the founder of the Investors Podcast, Preston Pish, just holistically with investing is like, and we're talking way beyond Bitcoin. Is a voice I've always resonated with. Josh has been interested in him longer, and he was a value investing Buffett head who you would never would have think you would have thought would get into Bitcoin, and now here he is obsessed. So. You know, everybody can kind of find their soldier, though, which I think is a little bit of a risk to play, you know, in that regard. The, the other yeah, thing I was yeah. going to say was, and I know this is like, I say this with caution because I'm sure there's some eye rolling from your side of like, this, like, your generation needs to pay more attention to the next one. But, but there is some merit there, and it's going to be the same for our generation looking at the next one. Like, from my 
lens, the vast majority of millennial investment professionals are at least engaged with Bitcoin. So let me give you just a couple personal examples. Uh, I don't work with him anymore, but I worked for seven years with a guy that worked for JP Morgan, and now he works for Citibank. He was my financial advisor, still a very good friend of mine. He outright encouraged me to invest in Bitcoin. This is a guy that works for a bank. I can think of three friends that work in finance professionally, a bond trader in the city of Chicago, a guy that's in derivatives, and then someone that runs a venture capital firm. All three of them own Bitcoin. Like when, you, when you're in our world, um, most millennials, I'm not saying they're all just leveling in, but they're engaged with. And generally, if they're in the financial sphere, own, hum, uh, own some of this. And so um, I think there is an element, and I'll let you kind of comment on whether you agree or disagree, that like at, if you are the older generation, you need to heed or pay attention to the convictions and preferences of the younger generation. We'll need to do just the same. And at the end of the day, all financial tools are, you know, we've used the word fictions, right? They're just ideas or technologies that we use. And I do think there is a roadblock for older generations. Like digital is viewed as fake. Like we've, we've heard a, a guy at the firehouse say like, I can touch my cash. Can you touch your Bitcoin? Like that kind of argument. And I think what, what someone like that fails to understand is that like in the future, digital fictions will be the most real fictions. And so I think that's something that everyone needs to prepare for. What's even wilder, even to me, is like you talk to people that are even younger than us and they're like teens or 20s. They've grown up their entire lives used to buying digital goods. They buy digital music. They buy special digital swords and video games that are rare and hold value, which is really nuts. I mean, to me probably to both Dan and yourself as well, that you would pay 500 actual dollars to buy a digital sword in a video game, but people do this. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't. No, that's something I'll agree on. It's ridiculous. But imagine that that generation, now they go into this understanding and this whole world make total sense to them, that there can be a digital money that I pay, you know, pay for, and it, and it just it, it dovetails very, very easily into their world. And I don't see that, that ball, stop. it's rolling down this hill and it's the snowball, you know, it, it, it's picking up speed and the young, younger people just get this very quickly. Yeah, I think that, there, I think, I think a lot of that is very fair. I mean, you know, at, at my age, I'm, my comfort level with things is very different than where your comfort level is. Um, yeah. And I need to acknowledge that and accept that. Um, there are a lot of things uh, I can remember asking my daughter, why are you texting all these people? Why don't you just call them? I didn't get the whole texting thing. She said, well, because I can text five people at the same time. I can't talk to five people at the same time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, we're a little slower to come around to this. But a lot of those same people that you're talking about to sort of just get this, they're the ones that are buying GameStop. Okay. I mean, yeah, I don't right. disagree with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, wait, wait, yeah, you're right. When we go for like the younger generation, yeah, that's a fair yeah. counter argument, Jim. Yeah. And so I, and just in the short term, and this doesn't get to the, to the value of Bitcoin in, in general, but sort of just in the short term, do you think that some of the price of, of Bitcoin 
even though it's come way down, is is a little bit of that um, what I'll call the GameStop mentality, the meme mentality, or the FOMO, you know, the fear yes. of missing out. Yeah, overwhelming. Absolutely. Yes, and it's not only okay. that; it's leveraged FOMO. There's yeah. massive yes. leverage in the system. Jim, we will, we will. This is a concession that is really important to make. I try to so. I've used the analogy before. The way I see Bitcoin is it's it's concrete topped with styrofoam. And when somebody flips on a lighter on the styrofoam, the whole thing disappears and you find out where the concrete is. Like they, they're it's rem- lower than you think. Usually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> there there remains there are so many morons interested in all the, the propensity of the percentage of moron involvement is Rampant across the whole space. It's higher in shit coins than in Bitcoin, but it's still heavy in Bitcoin. There's there's an enormous amount of speculation, and this is why I think that exists. This is my hypothesis. Okay, so when this this network is just increasing at a velocity and a pace that makes your head explode. Like we're at over a hundred million. I think we're between a hundred. I think we're close to one hundred and fifty million users. Like 10 years ago, there were less than a million users. So we've gone 150x in 10 years. In this last bull run alone, Jim, so like the price, obviously price is the ultimate attractor, right? As the price goes up, everybody gets interested and involved. Like we've doubled the, I think we've, we've close to doubled the network size in like six to eight months, okay? So when you're onboarding, you're onboarding millions and millions of people, there's a couple things that happen. First of all, you're working up against f- totally fixed supply. So you have millions of new users chasing tens of thousands of new coins, right? So in that sense, that's where you get this massive upward price move. I mean, it's been a 230% annualized return over whatever 12 years, but you can't have that upside without downside. So there's the price inelasticity uh, up against the massive orders of magnitude growth of user involvement is part of the reason you have upward and massive downward volatility because the two go hand in hand. And then additionally, if you just think about the user base that's onboarding, you know, we've established through this podcast and and even through this single discussion, like this is a super complicated uh, asset class to understand why, how it exists. And education breeds conviction. Like you're more apt to hold on to any investment, the better you understand it. This would be true of any investment. I'm sure you agree. So when you're onboarding millions and millions of users, most of whom don't have the time, capacity, or motivation to digest what they're investing in, you create super flimsy hands with the asset. And so when that lighter does go off on the styrofoam, like an Elon Musk tweet, you see the the wheat get separated from the chaff. And so um, yeah, volatility is just, it's a manifestation of market uncertainty and there's a lot of market uncertainty. There's a lack of education and understanding, but I think every time the price levels off, you see where that base is. And, and I do firmly believe that base is full of individuals that are smart and have strong conviction, understanding and long-term investment goals. But I, I will be the first to admit that there is a lot of riffraff going on. And um, you got to be aware of it. Yeah. And that's that's talking about that's really talking about the short term price aspect as opposed to 
is this a legit asset? So I want to make sure that 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 we clarify that. It's to to me it's more to me it's more about if I want to if I have ten thousand dollars to invest. Yes, is now a good time to invest in Bitcoin or you know and I and I don't uh, I don't ever try to time the market. When I was younger, I tried to do that and I failed miserably, as most people do. Yeah, we all did. Um, yeah, but um, but there is this aspect of you know holy smokes it went from 60,000 to 38,000 and um you know could it be 10,000 and it's, I, I worry about that in terms of sort of the short term investment thing yeah but you mentioned the volatility does the volat does the volatility scare people away does it make at least in the short term does it make it less valuable of an asset given the volatility and sort of on top of that in order for Bitcoin to really become what you all think it's going to become, does that volatility need to decrease? I think as a natural consequence of growing in value, it will dissipate this volatility. But I don't think it's going to happen for quite a long time. Yeah, I agree. Um, it, because, of, because of the price and elasticity, um, it, it just is going to naturally have these massive volatility moves and then you throw on top of that the fact that every every one of these um kind of financially ignorant people that go on to some of these exchanges where they offer leverage you can actually oh, get man. you can get leverage up to 100 to 1 on bitcoin i mean a 1% price move and you're wiped out your margin called yep. and you're done so yep. i don't think most of the people that are playing this game understand that at all and so they're they're watching the price go up $1,000 a day, thinking they're going to be millionaires. They throw in their $3,000 of the 100 to 1 leverage, and then they're wiped out. And, and then all these, it's a cascading effect. You know, all these other leverage traders are getting wiped as the price collapses, and then pretty soon you're down 50%. And it's a, it's a crazy wild ride. But then the opposite tends to happen on the bottom. You see all these short, these short guys come in. They start shorting the asset. And all that is is rocket fuel for when the short margin calls happen, when people pump the price up a couple thousand dollars in a day, all of a sudden there's a, there's a margin call for the short end and all the short sellers are being forced buyers, causing one of these massive green candles in the other direction. So as long as there's this, this derivative market offering people options and futures with leverage, I don't think the volatility is going away. And I also think that's why it's best to dollar cost average your way into this kind of an asset buying a big lump sum is usually not a good move so one of the so you were you were saying though if i if i understand your question right jim you were kind of saying like does volatility need to decline for this thing to accomplish the goals you guys are suggesting it might do i kind of under that's sort of what part of what you're wondering yeah so if in the, i i want to wire wire i want there there's the age thing i want to send money to my mother in guatemala so i buy bitcoin and i buy it at $37,000 uh, a coin i send it to her and by the time she gets around to spending that it's now $26,000 per coin she has lost enormous value in her purchasing power she's lost purchasing power with that bitcoin Given that, does it does that reduce the utility of it currently? Not maybe in the long term, but currently, 
um, does it reduce the utility, which then leads you to say it ha in order to it be to really utilize to to reach its potential, that volatility has to close down. Yeah. Um. So he, here here's where I go first to answer that, and I think this comes from being a not that we're Josh has been around longer than me, but we've both been around at this point. I, I'm about four years. He's longer than that. When the volatility argument is levied and you've had Bitcoin for a while, there is an, there's a little part of you that chuckles because you're just like, hang on for a second because no one's ever lost money on a four-year timeline. And, the, and as I said earlier, it's done 230% a year. So if you're investing in this as a store of value for three months, don't, don't come around. If you're invest our argument would be if you're investing in this as a store of value over 10 years, absolutely pile in. So I think time frame is important. Another thing though, to agree with you, I do believe that I, I talked way earlier in, in our discussion about the this bullish case for Bitcoin article and, and Josh touched on this too, where it goes from you know, a monetizing asset goes from collectible to store of value to medium of exchange to unit of account. And our contention is that we're in the store of, or our, uh, our thesis right now, our idea is that we're in the store of value phase. And I think what Josh was hinting at earlier was that we're probably going to be in this phase for a long time. And if, let's say we're, we're at, I would argue, 1% to 5% of terminal adoption. So we're at 150 million and we're going to billions of users. Volatility is going to persist for a long, long time. Now, I think over time, volatility will diminish and it has diminished. I know that's hard to grok when we just cut down 50%. But if you look at the data spread, volatility is diminishing over time. I think it will continue to do that. And I would say this, if we're, if we're at a we're at a less than a trillion dollar market cap. If we're at a $30 trillion market cap and the thing's still as volatile as, as it is today, um, I would agree that'll be a problem, but I don't, I don't think that's possible. I think as it continues to monetize and work down this progression, uh, market uncertainty, uh, new usership will diminish and volatility will decline. But in fairness, I totally agree with what Josh said. I think we're a long way from that. And so practically speaking, We've touched on this in previous episodes, but we would, we would suggest one of two strategies. If you get to a point where you're like, all right, I, I want to take a position, we would suggest either option one, just dollar cost average. Earmark a, an amount you want to put in and DCA in on a platform like Swan Bitcoin. If you have tremendous desperation to get a seat at the table, maybe bite off some in one sitting make one entry and then dollar cost average the rest. But you should be investing over intervals because this thing is just, the more, the more I look at it, the longer I've been a part of it, it's so impossible to predict. And for that reason, there's another thing we'll keep repeating episode after episode, do not trade Bitcoin with leverage. Just don't do it. It's not built for that. You're going to get wrecked eventually. Uh, the other part, uh, if I understood you correct, Jim, you asked about if you sent your mother in Guatemala some some bit of Bitcoin for her to you know to send her some money. 
I think it's important too that you understand that there's two there's two parts to this. There's Bitcoin the asset, which is a coin that you can buy, and there's Bitcoin the network, which enables all kinds of different interoperability with other networks. So, like that that company called Strike that built an app for you to send dollars to your friend in Europe and turn it into euros. If you use it in that capacity, um, as far as you know, you're never even touching Bitcoin. Bitcoin is just the network that's enabling your money to get to your mother in Guatemala. So uh, up until that volatility does drop, which could be a long time, you can use it in you can use Bitcoin, the network to send money across the world where then it can be transitioned into whatever currency that person prefers. Obviously, probably a more stable one unless they're going to sit on this money for a long period of time. Turning it directly into the local currency would probably be the way to go because then you don't have yeah. to worry about that volatility. The only time you're sitting on Bitcoin, the asset, is a few seconds. And even in its most volatile day, a few seconds isn't going to move significantly at all. Yeah. So I, that's the way I kind of see the transition happening. It's going to be much more using Bitcoin, the network, to move money around, maybe not even necessarily the end game being Bitcoin. But as that I, I, the way I kind of picture it in my mind is that as that use case and adoption grows by using the network, the asset is obviously the more money that moves in and around the network, the asset itself becomes more valuable. The more money gets poured into that in the long term, that asset gets more valuable and the, vol- the volatility drops um, in relation to that, I think. Yeah. I, I like what you said, though, about just transferring value instantaneously between currencies without even needing to take the risk of the underlying. Like in this set, like yeah. we're having a video call right now and we're using the, the VOIP protocol, the VoIP protocol, the voice over internet protocol. We don't, we don't understand how this protocol works. I don't understand how it was built and what exactly it's doing, but it's working for us to communicate over the internet. And so in that regard, the Bitcoin protocol very well, it is currently and will likely continue to proliferate as an internet protocol that enables people to transfer value. And whether they know they're using that protocol or not, some will and some won't. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of looking at it too. Um, Bitcoin is, I'm not going to say it the right way, but in my mind, it's the delivery method. Mm. Um, so, so the so how much value that Bitcoin holds isn't isn't important because it's only going to be Bitcoin for a millisecond. Yeah, it's going to go from U.S. dollars to Bitcoin to Guatemalan whatever their currency is. Yeah, in milliseconds or seconds or whatever. So yeah. So I have one last question for you guys. This has been a great conversation, but this sort of sums it all up uh, for me. I heard recently of a guy who um, was selling a business, and he was going to sell the business in Bitcoin. He was going to receive Bitcoin for the business. And that made me think, if you listed your house for sale, and I offered you Bitcoin for pay- as payment for your house, would you accept it? So, I mean, I would say yes, but my honest answer is it depends on if I need to buy another house or not, because if I'm going to buy another house in the next couple of months, then... Um, Goes back to the previous question. Yeah, you want to keep this thing in Bitcoin in the exactly. short term. 
Yeah, in the short term, the answer would be not if I need the money to go buy another house, but if I was lucky enough to be able to sell my house for profit and not need the money in the next couple of years, I'd be completely comfortable sitting on uh, on Bitcoin. But I think the market structure at the time, you know, a lot of other things, like if we're looking at parabolic moves to the upside and it's at a, it's kind of feels the way it does now, maybe not as much, but if we're in kind of a bear market phase and um, I think it, it depends on a lot of other things. But if, if you're telling me or asking me if I was going to take the value of my house in Bitcoin and I had to sit on it for five years, I would be very comfortable with that. I would tie that question in just to my holistic portfolio. So Bitcoin is a part of my diversified portfolio. I view it as a hedge position against an inflationary environment and an inflationary macro landscape. So there is a allocation percentage that I am looking that I have and I'm looking to get to. So um a sale of a home for me would just have to fit in with that broader allocation. Um I'm definitely not someone that thinks that you know Jim you probably haven't interacted a ton with with some just hardcore bitcoiners that claim that this is the only good place to store value on planet earth. Like I'm I'm not even close to that point. There's a lot of other good spaces to to put your money and I'm putting my money in a lot of different spaces. But yeah, Bitcoin obviously fits within my portfolio. Like I'm buying diversified mutual funds every single week and I buy Bitcoin every single day just because there's platforms that allow for that. So yeah, if I sold my house and I said, I'll take this, you know, yeah, you can pay me in Bitcoin for this percentage of the sale for sure. Would I take it for the entire sale? No. That might be where Josh and I diverge, but uh, that would be my answer. Just because that would put you out of proportion Correct. to where, yeah, you know, yeah, that makes sense. And I think, guys, I mean, look, this has been um, awesome for me. I really appreciate it. Your explanations on a lot of these things have made a lot of sense to me. I think where I have gotten, without sort of rethinking this and 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 spending a little bit of time regurgitating it in my brain, um, I think at least at the moment, today as we speak. I see Bitcoin as 100% an investment. And so you need to look at it and, and sort of decide, is this, do I think this investment is going to continue to go up? Is it going to crash and need to figure that out? I don't, I don't feel comfortable with it right now as a currency because of the volatility and all that. But having said that, some of the concepts you've introduced to me about the overlaying um, technology like Lightning start to make me think more that that could eventually and maybe in the nearer future sooner more than i thought become much more viable as a currency so um yeah this has been really useful for me i appreciate your time talking to somebody who is both naive and a skeptic and maybe those two go together you you teed this up for us seriously we greatly appreciate your time we, your questions were incredibly thoughtful. Obviously, our answers are not perfect because nothing in this, if something in this world is perfect, I don't want to be part of it. There, there's no such thing. So Bitcoin's not perfect. And if it was, I would, I would sniff out bullshit. So we welcome and appreciate your skepticism. We're on this journey with you exploring this thing. And um, 
yeah, thanks. Thanks for, for taking the time. Yeah, honestly, Jim, thank you. I know uh, your time's valuable. You've got a lot of stuff going on, and we're humbled that you could be here with us to to let us tickle your ear with all of this made-up magic internet money. Well, it's my pleasure, and when I become a Bitcoin millionaire, I am not going to share it with you. <laughs> <laughs> Likewise. <laughs> yeah. Hey, uh, you I know will, what? I'm starting will, a new business, Jim. I'm a Bitcoin custodian now, so you should let me hold on to that Bitcoin yeah, for you. We'll, we'll custody it for you, Jim. Yeah, don't worry about it's it. It's complicated. I'll take care of it. We'll just yeah, well, pet your hair and, uh, and custody your Bitcoin. Yeah, so the Bitcoin will be in the mail, gentlemen. All right. The check will yeah. be in the other direction. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Now, this was great fun. I really appreciate it. It's nice getting back in touch with you guys. I hope you're all doing well. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate it. All right. Take care, guys. You too. Thanks for listening into the show. If you enjoyed this discussion, be sure to subscribe on whatever app you're using for podcasts. And if you have an extra minute, leave us a review. If you're not already following us on Twitter, we are at blue underscore collar BTC. We look forward to you joining us next time on the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast.